Hello and welcome to Two Guys Discussing Software. This is our 13th episode and this is the, going to discuss today the future of the mega vendors, our favorite topic. And it's two Irish guys from us just to keep reminding me of that. Thank you. Thank you. That's right, Brendan. Thank you very much. Yes, two Irish guys. How could I forget? Even the accents, how could anyone else forget as well? If you haven't heard us before, we do this podcast every month. We like to talk about everything in the software world. Particularly, we like to talk about the mega vendors. My name is Tomás O'Leary. I'm the CEO and founder of Origina. And I'm delighted, as the voice you just heard there is Brendan Walsh, uh, my very, very good friend and colleague here at Origina. He's our chief commercial officer by title, but he's he's a pal, ultimately. Uh, How are you, Brendan? Yeah, I'm good. And and thanks for the very kind introduction. Yeah, I'm I'm looking out at a beautiful day here in Dublin, still stuck in my house, not traveling to the office yet, but it's a stunning day. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting out later on. Yeah, we don't get to see enough of each other. It's this socially distant world we live in. I think there's some movement happening, happening. And our guest later is really going to help us. We've been delighted to be joined by David Hool in about 10 or 15 minutes time. David is a author, speaker, but ultimately he's a futurist. And David wrote a fantastic book called Entering the Sh- Shift Age and actually had an opening question. Do you feel anxious about the about the future? So I think actually all of us will answer that question in the affirmative at this point in time. But we're delighted to have David join us later, looking at particularly looking at helping us try and predict what might happen to these mega vendors. David has obviously been a speaker of the year for Vista International, uh, one of the leading CEO organizations, uh, grouping organizations in the world, actually. Massive, massive organization. And he is well known in media and other, many other sources. And I've seen him speak on a number of occasions and know him for quite some time. So really delighted that David could join us and we'll be speaking to him shortly. But um, Brandon, we have to start always with obviously mega vendors, but there's always one organization that just, we just have to have a conversation that the IBM company corporation, we just need to start at them. They, they Again, they're great for news, aren't they? Oh yeah, they never, they, they're like the uh, the present that keeps on giving when it comes to IBM. There's, all, there's always a good news story depending on your uh, your take on it. But yeah, so they've been in the news again. I mean, I think we talked last quarter about, you know, their quarterly results. We saw that the results were down that time about 3.4% over 2019, uh, which in itself down 4.7% over 2018. So just to put that in context of numbers, people can get their head around. That represents about 1.44 billion in reduced revenue just for the quarters not for the year uh, over that period so that's a big drop in revenue but much like when Ginny Romady was around you know they she used to reward herself or the remuneration committee used to give her lots of bonuses for for well well, deser- well deserved well deserved i'm sure oh yeah i mean like i think in i think in 2020 or 2019 i think surprisingly she got a 20 million dollar package but she did grow the revenue by 0.1% so Fair, fair play to her for that. Uh, missed all their targets, missed, missed uh, all of IBM's own targets. But I think you might recall from our previous podcast that uh, she was res- noted for her responsible approach to artificial intelligence. So that's worth 20 million to me. All by itself. Yeah, all by all itself. By yeah, I'm yeah. sure. So, uh, but the remuner- <laughs> I love that remuneration committee. We might set one up ourselves uh, at Origina because it sounds like a fantastic thing to have, a wonderful thing to have. But on the back of those results, anyway, IBM announced that it was boosting 
the dividend, uh, and it boosted it by one cent to one dollar sixty-three a share, uh, and so an increase of a penny, which was called a boost, uh, by the way. And remarkably, it's the twenty-fifth year in a row that they've boosted the quarterly dividend, and they haven't failed to pay a dividend since nineteen sixteen, the year of the the rising here in Ireland. So. So they're pretty pretty consistent paying themselves a dividend, and it equates to actually it also this quarter uh, finally it equated to 1.4 billion in returns to shareholders, which which was the same amount of free cash flow that they generated in the quarter. So free cash flow was generated 1.4 million but billion, but they paid that all out. Well, I guess. I mean, as a shareholder of IBM, then if you get you're getting stung on the share price because it's really gone nowhere near the, where the market's been going over the last couple of years. But at least you're getting a dividend, so that's a good sign. Good sign. Yeah. I saw yeah. they had their think. Well, they had, they were supposed to have it in San Francisco in the Marconi Center, but they had it online. They had was it ninety thousand people turn up? Quite a quite a turnout for their online. Mm-hmm. It was pretty impressive, to be it's fair. Yeah. You know, credit where credit's due. But I thought some news. I read some of the headlines from it. They stayed away from. All the software products, they're really pushing the, the AI piece. They're pushing Red Hat, of course, open source software, 5G even. What's the role mm. in 5G? I'm not sure yet. And, and cloud. But their traditional products, as we saw last year in 2019, they sold off three lots of software to three different companies. And really, the, the future for their traditional perpetually licensed software is probably pretty bleak, uh, I would imagine, given the fact that they don't even... It's not even raised. So their traditional WebSphere products or DB2 or any of those products, they're really not getting a look in. And speaking of money, you spoke the 20 million that Ginny Romady, but she's not really even close to some of the richest people in the world. I saw since the outbreak, there's people who track in some of these numbers. And I know you love your numbers. So mm. I decided <laughs> I'd get my, my hands on some of my own oh. for a change. Oh, I know uh, you would. <laughs> so we're looking at likes of Jeff Bezos, up $30 billion at roughly dollars in the period. Steve Ballmer, up $5 billion. This is like increases, not total total net worth Larry Ellison a miserly 670 million dollars only that's very sad yeah and poor old Bill Gates has been on the news a lot getting a lot of stick for his um, pushing the uh, virus or um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) not the virus apologies Uh, a cure for the virus and he's getting a lot of stick out there oh yeah he has a patent patent on the virus apparently yeah I don't know what he has, but he's obviously a lot of uh, conspiracy theories about poor old Bill. He's lost nine billion. Larry wow. Page and even and Sergey Brin have also done money. So it's a bit of a mixed bag for the software software world over the last while. And I, I see also the kind there's been a lot of talk about influence. You know, we see this in Europe a lot. With there's been a lot a number of rows between. Uh, there was an, actually an online an online row between uh, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, one of the new tech chiefs in the European Union, a guy called Thierry Breton. They had an online conversation and they had a bit of a ding dong over you know Facebook's kind of a rights to manage their data better. I'm not sure if you saw as well, Brendan, it was actually a new law in France only in the last week, 10 days, they they pushed a bill through and they've, yeah, they're forcing the large web companies to and online companies to, to take down hate speech for the first time. That is a new law. Now, it's only in France at the moment, but there's a good chance, like these laws have tended to go across Europe. And in time, as you're even seeing with the likes of GDPR and even the right to be forgotten element of that, there's certain elements of that starting to creep into mm. some of the more 
liberal states in the US like California and others. And you may see if there is a change in, in politics in the United States that's happening more and more. So, and yeah. they're the two, I mean, I guess to be honest with you, it's European Union and the US that really make all the rules here. I saw uh, that. But yeah, look at, look at those numbers. Yeah. So it's a pretty punitive challenge. Like it says, I think you have to take, they have to take down hate speech and, and, and you know, speech around terrorism within an hour. Of it going up, so that's that's a tough ask. I would have thought. Yeah, I think it's but twenty four hours in total. But, I think it is, and but the, yeah. but the but the penalty is four percent of global revenue. Yeah. That's a lot of money for some of these guys mm. in one for per penalty four percent. So yeah, we'll see where that goes. So yeah, I mean numbers. Any other numbers, Brand? Well, on, on, I suppose on a, on a good news note, and it's it's hard to find bad news about Microsoft. I know we try and find about lots of the other guys, like our Larry, etc. We'll talk about him shortly. And I think this is something that's going to come up. We're going to talk to David about it, about you know what's going to happen with the, the mega vendors and, and the prediction. But but they seem to be hanging in there, some of them. I mean, the Nasdaq had gone down, you know, immediately after the kind of suppose the outbreak, and it's gone back up again. Not not to pre COVID nineteen. Levels, but it's but it's certainly you know it's certainly increased and it's and it's obviously dominated by tech companies, and one of those tech companies is Microsoft, which had growth of fifteen percent over the period, and that's pretty substantial. So it's I think it's a five billion increase in quarterly revenue over over the same period last year. Is that just since the beginning of the year? Well, that's the, that's their their Q three results. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. But, but quarter on quarter, yeah. So like increased by fifteen percent. It was thirty billion odd in the quarter last year, and it's up to thirty five billion. And obviously, some of that is a lot of that has been attributed to the cloud. Uh, I think, as we know, and it may come up in conversation later on around that their team communication app is now over seventy five million daily active users, and you know, impressively, that's up forty four million since the start of March. So that kind of gives an indication of what's happening people working from home we'll talk a little bit that i'm sure with david about what the future holds for people and 39 nearly 40 million subscribers to uh, office 365 which is up up 16 so yeah things are looking good and like alphabet and facebook posted positive results as well uh, microsoft shares are up 12 percent of the year whereas the s p 500 is down nine percent so the tech stocks look like they're holding their own maybe not ibm but all the other tech stocks seem to be beating the trends and beating the market. Yeah, yeah. But the market is not really, uh, Wall Street's not following Main Street yet. So we wait and see what happens there. I mean, that's, yeah, I look forward to chatting to David about that. And you, you mentioned Microsoft and you mentioned Satya Nadella. We, tr- we really struggle to find anything bad to say about the guy. And to be fair, with all those results, and that's, that's a seriously impressive increase, 15% in, uh, for a company of their size. That's, that is huge. But he's all he's gone out recently, and he's been telling people actually, you know, we we all saw Jack Dorsey saying everybody can work from home for forever. You know, we've had Facebook and Alphabet, obviously Google, coming out saying the same thing to well, at least to the end of the year. He's actually come out, even though they've done really well on the back of this. He's come out and said actually, it's not such a good idea. That's an interesting take, and it doesn't sound like marketing spin. It sounds like genuinely coming from the heart. So, Mm. I mean. I think one of the quotes he said, he was like, this remote working setup would be replacing one dogma with another dogma. So given, you know, given what Microsoft have done in terms of driving the dogma of software for a long, long time, I think he's certainly making the right noises in terms of making friends in that world. But that whole online working is, you know, between themselves and Zoom and all the other platforms, 
it's really it's driven huge. I mean, I think Zoom have doubled their, their share values, more than doubled since the crisis started. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. We, and we picked up on Zoom on, on our last podcast as well. You know, to Satch's point, I suppose, you know, everything can go online. You know, there could be, and we read some articles about this, you could have, you know, tele-schooling and, and tele-medicine and, um, you know, you'd, you're, you'd be stuck in your home with entertainment and you'd never get out. But that can't be healthy for society. So I'm not sure where that's all going to end up. But Zoom are certainly certainly doing very well. I mean, the last the lad podcast, we saw that Larry Ellison, uh, we love love Larry, had surprisingly said that he 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 dis, he determined Zoom to be an essential service for their business. Now it's unlike Larry to be talking up other software companies, and we thought maybe he was doing that because you know, well, he doesn't like Microsoft, so he's trying to talk up one of their competitors, which is Zoom. And so we thought, well, that must be it. But actually, no, that's not it. I think we, we dug a little bit deeper and we found out, well, actually, that Zoom had picked Oracle over AWS and Azure for its expansion plans for its platform. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so they're, be- they're, they're benefiting to the tune of we don't know how much per month for the 217,000 terabytes of data that's now flowing through Zoom each month. So we dug a little bit deeper, and there's lots of people writing about this, but it, it seems that if you were to get the retail price of Amazon, that 217,000 terabytes would actually cost you $11 million per month at, re- at retail prices. Now, I don't think you can go to <laughs> your local store and buy it, but you know what I mean? You go online. Whereas Oracle was 10 times cheaper at just over a million dollars, $1.1 million before an advertised 30% discount uh, that you can get I think by buying online, like you know, like, <laughs> if you buy your pizza online, you get, you uh, look, so so what you're telling us then that Larry's uh, pitch was just your typical never, never lose an opportunity to make the pitch. So what a what a sales guy! He's never lost it. He's never lost it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. But listen, you were touching out there that the share price increases and the software industry has absolutely transformed in the, since the last recession. And you wonder, do they think they're recession proof? You know, looking at the software industry today as a spend across all asset classes, they're over 50 percent of technology spend in businesses today. I mean, you go back 20, 30 years ago, that would have been probably at best high single digit, maybe low double digit. I mean, it's massively trying. I mean, everything is software today. I mean, software is absolutely everywhere. Uh, you can't, you, you fall over software. I mean, I mean, you walk into your house, there's software in it. And I mean, everything that was hardware is now software. So we're seeing a huge, huge move. It's as if though, they feel as if they're, they're future-proofed here. Yeah, well, it's the second highest spend category, I think, from from a recent article I read, to only to personnel. So yeah, it is everywhere, and and it's not probably managed as well as it should be. So there's lots of software that's out there that's probably been paid for and not being used. But I think yeah, since the last recession, a lot, a lot has changed. You know, um, there was a lot more on-prem software. 10, 12 years ago than there is today, 2007, 2008, everybody was still buying on-premise, you know, software for ERP, et cetera. That's all shifting to the cloud. So it'll be interesting to see how recession-proof that that becomes, particularly in the face of, you know, mass unemployment in in all jurisdictions, but the biggest market in the world for software, the US unemployment is at 30%. So will that cause them to be less recession-proof? I guess... Uh, time will tell. 
yeah, there's a there's a there's a podcast I follow actually. Track changes, it's called. Uh, guys out of, out of the U, out of the northeast of the US, and they've talked about software eating the world. Uh, I think that's a that's very it's a very apt expression. There's a, actually a, a buddy of mine, John Reimer at, at Forrester Research. Actually, I don't know if you know John. He's been talking about actually what's going to happen coming out of this. His prediction is that you're going to see all types of companies now moving very quickly away from innovation and growth. It'll all be about initially certainly cost and, cost. and and optimization of costs is really where it's going to be going to be at and and I think the companies that are that are able to adapt to that as qu- as quickly as possible will be the ones that really will will survive on the assumption that they have a market that they have a market I think this is really a good time I think uh, to bring David David Hool in uh, before I introduce Dave just introduce David really quickly again. David is one of the most renowned futurists out there. He's trusted advisor to over two and a half thousand CEOs and an author of many, many books, a lecturer even to actually one of our team here in Ireland who was studied in the US, believe it or not, David, we found out after we spoke to you recently. So, David, how are you? I'm great. Glad to be on. I've enjoyed listening to you. I've been learning a lot. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. But <laughs> certainly, hopefully you had some fun listening in there. Where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm in Sarasota, Florida, where it's a lovely 85 degree, well, it will be shortly 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, 25 degrees Celsius, I guess. You know, we're, we're not we're not far behind you. We're at 65 or thereabouts <laughs> in, in round numbers. <laughs> 65 in Dublin is uh, like 85 in Florida. Yeah, it, right. it, it feels like that here where we are today. It's great. Great to have the good weather. At least it's, it's keeping us. It's the one thing. One of the few things keeping a smile on our face. You, you've been listening to the conversation and the last topic. I really, I would love to get your thoughts on on that. And I, and I, I think I mentioned at the top of the, the the podcast. You wrote a piece in your in your book, entering the shift age, about do you feel anxious about the future? I'm wondering, are the software companies feeling anxious about the future? I mean, all we're all feeling anxious about the future. But last time around, software companies came out and they they really wiped the floor. What what are your what are your thoughts on this? Well, let me ask you a question about that, because I was listening to you talk about that. Did they wipe the floor in part because employment went down and there was a substitution of software for people? Well, they they went, I think a couple of things happened, to be perfectly honest with you. I think there's been a, a massive shift in technology from, I think we mentioned there earlier, myself and Brendan, from hardware devices to, right. to software. So some of that spend, it, there's been a natural growth in obviously all IT. And what happens is, what in, in my skeptical mind says, you know, guys, uh, companies that were selling what they would refer to as tin with some software on the side, and the software would have been a small percentage, let's call it a mid-single digits percentage of the, of the total tin cost. They've actually mm-hmm. started to put more software in, to be fair, but actually the percentage of that value has changed. So in other words, that same tin at 100% was the, was the product, 95% was hardware, 5% was software. Now they're selling the same sort of similar products or the next generation, and it's almost 50-50 or 60-40, depending on the, on the split. And that's had an impact for sure because you just we've recategorized some spend. I think it's also been driven a lot by the fact that they can control uh, user rights or they feel they can control user rights if they have access to the software and ownership of the software. And ownership of software is less clear. Do you not think so? I don't know whether you agree with that. 
Yeah, no, I, I, uh, there's several things to talk about here. Um, relative to ownership, uh, I think you've heard me talk about the fact that in all the developed countries of the world, certainly in the United States, in it's starting in real estate and moving to content. We are no longer a ownership economy. We are a rental economy or an access economy. I mean, I, you know, on, on the consumer level, we don't buy CDs. We stream from Spotify. We don't buy DVDs. We watch Netflix. And that same value is going to permeate through all levels of the economy. In other words, I don't need to buy. I just need to rent. And even uh, Mercedes, BMW, and Audi, you can now rent a brand new car. And you can rent used cars at a lower cost than the depreciation of buying a new car for the first year. So, so anything that is... You got to buy, you got to buy, you got to buy. It's going to swim upstream, I think, over the next few years. I think it's I need it when I need it at the lowest cost possible. And I don't want to have to put put any money down on it. So, I mean, I think that that's the way it's going to be in, a, in corporate America. And I think globally, the access is going to particularly now that we've entered a recession beyond that, a depression. Right. I, you know, I don't know what the UK is going to be, but certainly the United States is in the depression. The only the only relevant numbers to what we're seeing today is the 1930s. So when you're going to enter into depression, you have to say, OK, so what is it people are not going to have? They're not going to have money in the bank. They're not going to have security. They're going to have a high sense of anxiety about what everything is going to end up being. So any prominent CEO is going to hoard cash and look at costs until they have a better idea of what's going forward. And who will be hit hardest by that? Well, I think, it, I mean, I can't think of a business sector that's not going to be hit hard. But in terms, you know, and I don't know, uh, like, for example, one of the one of the cataclysmic businesses to be in is the commercial real estate business going forward. There's no question about that. Physical retail is going to continue to collapse. And I don't know what the numbers are. You guys may have a feel for it. But if you take, I've been using, say, 80 million people in the United States. So double that to take into Europe. So there's 150, 160 million people who never had to work from home before. And there are employers that employ those people that have had the people come into the office. So now that, you know, I work from home, I think you work from home to some degree because uh, you travel a lot. And, and the point is that, that whenever a new behavior has taken root, it always takes some of it. So if you have 150 million people, maybe 10 million of whom have worked from home, and so you got 140 million people, out of that 140 million people, probably 10, 20, 30, 40 million go, oh, this is great, right? And the owners are going to go, why do I need to rent the downtown Dublin, the downtown Tampa, the downtown New York office space when they can work from home? I mean, I think what Jack Dorsey said was really profound. And mm -hmm. I, I do think with where there's unemployment, what we've learned from the last and there's far more unemployment today than any time since the 30s. Right. I mean, it's, the United States is at 30 percent unemployment. It never got past 12 percent unemployment, in the Great Recession. So it's two and a half times that. So when that happens, I think mobility increases because people, you know, either need to move to where the jobs are or in the absence of jobs, they need to work from where they are. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the la- one other thing I want to make before I forget about it is you use the word innovation. And, you know, you know, I've, I've, I've written this book and I talked about how the 2020 is going to be the most disruptive decade in human history. So I really want tech people to stop using the word innovate or innovation. It's a 1990s word. We're in a disruptive time. We're in a transformational time. So innovation is not, nothing more than iterative change. You know, I always like to say to audiences, I simplify it. I go, if Steve Jobs was an innovator, instead of the iPhone we got, we would have gotten a BlackBerry with a bigger screen. Instead, he was a disruptor, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that would have been innovation right now because go back to 2005, 2006, we all had Blackberries, right? Yeah. And you know, it was half the thing and it was a keyboard, right? It would have been a bigger screen. Instead, he, he had a completely disruptive product. So the point is, in an age of disruption, innovation, if everybody says, oh, we provide innovative solutions, you know, I go to your conference too, we provide innovative solutions too, we buy, if everybody's providing innovation solutions, there's no innovations, like if everybody says awesome, or the Brits say brilliant all the time, nothing's brilliant, because everything's brilliant, right? So, yeah. so innovation is a dead word, please stop using it. Yeah, 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 couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's the it's the it's the space for disruption. And I and I and I, I always like to look back a little bit to see how can we look forward. And I look sure. at what happened after the last recession in two thousand, the financial crisis of two thousand and eight. And after that, I mean, the software industry, broad strokes, but the business software is probably worth about four hundred billion dollars, or just shy of that. It's now over eight hundred billion dollars. One of the tricks that the soft, big, some of the big software vendors started to use increasingly more that, uh, post two thousand and eight was audits. So they actually dubbed, they really increased their audit activity. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this. Is this is where companies are using more software than they should and and uh, or, li- or, or sorry are licensed to use and originally this started out as a, as a kind of a obviously clearly you, you shouldn't be using any more than you than you're entitled to use but it became actually a little bit sneakier than that it became well the software vendors realized the companies hadn't read the terms and conditions or the fact that they've changed them 10 times in the last six years and were able to catch them out all right so it became a business and actually they're estimates that this could be worth of the 800 billion plus about 200 billion of that spend so things like that that what's that was basically when people stopped buying their software that they voluntarily they were forced to buy software hmm. i just don't think because we bounced out of it and the money was so readily available and particularly in the very big corporations where most of the spend is anyway those companies have had a lot of cash and very cheap cash for quite some time that's not going to be available, is it? And that, and that is innovation. That's not what you describe as, as an invention in the, in the way you described earlier. Yeah, no, I, in fact, I'm writing a, a column now that I'm going to put up in Medium in this new magazine I started there. And basically, you know, the working title is it's not when the economy bounces back. It's how it will bounce forward. So if you think of, you know, that Warren Buffett always had the phrase that um, if you invest and there's a high tide, when the, when the tide goes out, you see who's naked, right? So <laughs> think, of that in terms of, think of that in terms of COVID-19. What COVID-19 has shown the UK, it's shown all the developed countries of the world that we have fragile systems. We have out-of-date constructs. We have no longer valid institutions. And we have no longer valid functional high-speed democracies. And so the 
reinvention of capitalism and the reinvention of democracy are two of the things that are going to happen in the 2020s. So, you know, when you talk about capturing and, and people not reading terms, it's survival of the strongest. You, and you talk, you're talking about big vendors, right? So they think of themselves as big and fit. So uh, survival of the fittest and survival of the strongest is going to be an outdated business model. And those that will survive, adapt and flourish over the next five years are going to be those that are more adaptive and resilient. So what we've seen in the, in the capitalist economies that are in a state of collapse, there's no resilience. There's no adaptability, right? So, and the other thing is, I think any company, software company that t- decides to take advantage of their clients is a short-term gain and a truly long-term loss because there are so many people that are wondering if they're going to have a business, if they're going to have employees, if they're going to have a job, if they're going to be able to update, if, 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 that anybody that comes across as I'm taking advantage of you in this time of pandemic are going to be long-term losers. So, I mean, it seems to me that the people in the software business want to double down on how do we make the current economy? How do we make software the salvation, the solution, the partner of figuring out the next reality, the next construct. So, yeah, but isn't there isn't there a possibility here, David, that what will happen is if you look at the Irish economy in relation to the business, the business structure we have, we've got you know we've got overseas capital investment from mostly from the U.S. We've got, but half the businesses are, or half the employment is created by the small companies that employ less than 50 people, and they're the ones that are suffering right now. And what we've seen in the U.S. is that the rich are getting richer. I mean, the, the, the you know Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, they're all flourishing at the moment because more of their technology has been used because Amazon is, is using its technology for to enhance the consumer experience, and it's got a supply chain kind of locked down, and Microsoft is, is because people are working from home, it's benefiting. So... Is there, is there actually, you know, what do you see what might be happening is that this divide between the haves and the have-nots, particularly when you look at the mega vendors, that it's it, it potentially getting bigger. As Kamos is, you know, talking about earlier, the top, I think the top 600, you know, billionaires in the US have added on 400 billion to their wealth since the start of the year. And a lot of those are the, you know, the top 10 of those are probably the, me, the mega, the mega vent software vendors. So, so do you see actually the shift this divide getting bigger and actually the mega vendors making hay during a crisis while everybody's suffering. Is that something you see happening? No, I do not. I mean, there's going to be that attempt, but it's a long-term failure. You're, you're within the construct or the self-isolation of tech. So, you know, you made a comment that it's the smaller companies that are suffering. Let me just suggest the airlines, which are running at 5% occupancy now. And let me suggest car manufacturers that have, you know, I haven't seen current statistics, but the average cost of a used car in the month of March in the United States went down by 15%. So you're going to have deflation at at the consumer level, right? And if you have deflation and you're living through deflation, the way that big companies, only way the big companies will grow is if they discount their prices. So market share can happen, but 
if it's perceived to happen as a taking advantage of rather than a helpful, uh, it'll be counterproductive. I mean, I, um, Tomas, you, you talked about a lot of taking on a lot of low interest loans. You know, just think of the airlines industry and the automotive industry. Most of the big traditional industries have bonds at junk bond levels, right? So, yeah. so you know, the interesting thing is I think one of the reasons the stock market's going up is the stocks you've mentioned. I mean, you got Amazon, you got Facebook, you got Google, you got Apple, and they're disproportionate. I think they're 20% of the value of the Fortune 500, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. S&P 500. So that's keeping it up. If you, if you were to take out those five or six FANG stocks, the indices would be way down. So, okay. you know, it, I think what this is going to be is, you know, I mentioned to you before we started that I've been saying for two or three years that the future corp- future corporations will have fewer people, much more technology and much more training. So to your point, if software is 50 percent of the tech spend, that will probably go up to the degree that it replaces humans and also provides really robust training for the corporate clients. And if you were to be sitting in front of the CEO of IBM or SAP or Oracle, the ones that are, I'll take Microsoft out of it because they seem to be a little bit better, in our, certainly in our view, but it's a, the mega vendor, more traditional ones who have probably treated their clients poorly in many many cases. I'd say, listen, how that, that leap forward you talk about, that jump forward, how would you tell them? What would you say to them to look out for the certain things that they should be doing? Well, I, I think that customer support and customer service and your and the reputation, your corporate reputation around that needs to always be improved. Remember, we're going to reinvent democracy and reinvent capitalism in the 2020s. So reinvention, you know, the historical term is creative destruction. So the big companies and the companies that represent the way business has done are most at, at risk of creative destruction. So any big, any, you know, IBM, I don't know their brand relative to handholding customer service, nice guys, but the big companies are the ones that are always at risk in a time of great upheaval because they've been, they've become big based on the old model, based on the legacy thinking of this is the model that works. So in a way, they're most at risk because they have the most to risk by change because they're successful based on the past model. Whereas a Facebook, I mean, the future of, of social media and stuff like that is going to be subscription going forward, but you can't displace Facebook. You can't displace Google. One of the interesting things that I ask you guys, because, you know, one of the simple ways I'm looking at it is, you know, you speak well of Am- you know, Amazon is gargantuan. You speak well of Microsoft. So my sense is in an oversimplified way that the tech center, the quote, Silicon Valley's part of the United States is moving from the Bay Area up to Seattle, right? Seattle seems to be having a renaissance with those two companies. I mean, Microsoft seems to be doing everything right. And Amazon has staked total ownership of retail, right? So, you know, in a time of pandemic. So the question is, how will IBM adapt to whatever it is that is the new business model that they can't yet see? And I think smaller companies inherently are more adaptive and resilient. Larger companies are more hierarchical and structured. So, yeah. the le- you know, so I would push back. I think the bigger the company, the more at risk they are, certainly in the non-tech sector. I certainly agree with you there. I think the more diversified they are as well, 
I think if you've got a very clear, I mean, a big, I mean, the bigger the corporate, of course, it does lots of things. But if it's got really got the one or two things it does, it does them really well. Even if you're very big, you you can do that. The problem with some of the other companies, they do so many things. What really should happen now is they should be broken up. I've said this for a long time. I've said the likes of a corporation. Just I know, I know we. I mean, uh, for us, it's a, it's a, all a bit of a tongue in cheek thing, you know. In a, in a business sense, we we compete with IBM, so we we like to have a bit of a laugh. But actually, it's not really at the same time. It's quite serious. They really should. They should start to break the company up into its constituent parts because uh, they should have done this a long time ago. And then they would be able to deal with some of these challenges. They'd have nimbler management teams. They'd be able to to adapt faster and have that resilience, as you described earlier, that's needed in, in like corporate resilience. It's not just the personal resilience that you have as individuals. And I love when you talk about that because in our own company, we talk about it all the time. And I talk about all that all the time. As a corporation and a company, you have to have it too, as well as the, so it's made up of, of the culture and of the individuals. But, but you know, you also... The general thinking is think of somebody who works for a large corporation versus thinking of an entrepreneur, right? So, you know, the old, the, the, the cliche coming out of dot com 1.0 is you need entrepreneurialism in the big corporation. Well, I don't know how well that has come in, right? So I think you're right, Tomas, that, that what have we seen? You know, coming into the, the 2000s, Jack Welsh was considered the great CEO of America last quarter century less. And now he's totally denigrated because the whole concept of the conglomerate doesn't function now. Break it up and make each one more nimble. I mean, for example, I got on Instagram right at the time, right after Facebook bought it. And I think Instagram was great, but everyone's been on it for a while says, oh, Facebook has just messed it up, right? The uniqueness of it has been dampened down by corporate. So that's what corporations do. And that's counter to what's about to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I agree. And tell me, tell me, uh, David, what, what are you working on at the moment? You have, you have a new book coming out? Yeah, I do. Thanks for asking. Um, it, you know, it's, it's really funny that we're sitting here in May. So the book I'm coming out with is the first book of a series on the decade, the 2020s. The 2020s decade is going to have more change than any two to three decades. It is the decade that will determine the rest of the way the story is written in this century, or at least for the next 50 years. So there's so much change coming. So I wrote, uh, the first book is called The 2020s, The Most Disruptive Decade in History. So sitting here on May 20th, you know, I, I've been saying to people for the last couple of months, so how's the first part of the decade worked out for you, right? This is just an indication of how ups, uh, how transformative it's going to be. You know, yeah. people who are interested, you can go to the 2020sdecade.com and the2020sdecade.com and you can maybe put that up, but the book should be out next week, end of May. Yeah. And the other thing is, and you've heard me speak, as you said in the introduction, um, I believe that this depression is going to last at least through 2022. And all conferences this year, as you know, have been going virtual. And I think people are hedging their bets for 2021. But I think it's going to happen. So I've moved my keynoting business rather than flying all around the world. I do virtual keynotes. You know, we yeah. talked about that. And, and so the two things I'm working on is moving my business where I get paid 
you know, I'm an example, right? So 90% of my revenue came from getting on one or more planes to fly to a place, to be around people all the time, to go to a convention hall or a hotel bar and speak to a few hundred, a few thousand people. Well, that business model is gone. So how do I reinvent my business model? Well, I, do, I don't do Zoom. I do a higher end of live broadcast quality streaming to my corporate clients. So I'm working on moving that and then also this book. And um, I hope to have... Tomas, um, uh, come, you know, book every six months come out so that by the first half, by 2025, I would have uh, eight to 10 books out about this decade because it's the age of intelligence, which you just touched on. It's the age of climate change and it's the reinvention of democracy and capitalism. And then towards the end of the decade is this emerging new global consciousness that we kind of see in COVID, right? We've got this declaration of interdependence going on, regardless of what the politicians are doing. So, yeah, so I'm working on writing books about this decade and making my speeches online. And I, I, I loved your book, The Spaceship Earth, that you wrote with Tim Rubbage. You talked about the, the limitations that there exist with resources and space and the fact that actually maybe there's some good things that'll come out of this. You know, the, the, one of the, this column I'm writing is, you know, the economy is going to come back, but we can't use GDP as a measurement, right? So the book I wrote last year, Moving to a Finite Earth Economy, says we have to move to conscious non-consumption. And so one of the big things that's going to come out of the COVID-19 depression, the first depression of the 21st century, is a, a collapse of consumption. Yeah. And the United States has 70% of its GDP is consumption. And so the point is that at the human level, and at the corporate level, purchasing is going to go way down and, and renting is going to go way up. And people do not have money. And by extension, corporations can't expect to get paid the money they used to get. I mean, just think about the fact that there's 30 percent unemployed in the United States. The most that were unemployed in the Great Depression was 25 percent. So, yeah, yeah. Um, they were they were slightly different times, though, weren't they? I mean, one was caused by you know poor policy decision making, and this is just a you know a, a black swan event. Do you think this is going to have permanency, or do you think perhaps there, this is just temporary? You know, if we if there was a vaccine in in, in six months' time, do all the predictions change, or do you just see the world has changed forever, and the decades of change that you talked about is just being accelerated by this? This is this is a symptom of the times. Mm. It's not a cause of the times. Mm. I mean, for 10, 12 years, people ask questions all the time after my talk. So what about a pandemic? And I says there will be one. In fact, there'll be several. Just as we're getting, we think we've solved COVID-19, something else is going to come up. So I think this is a practice. It, yeah. It's really a transformation from moving to how do we live in a a time of pandemic and a time of climate change, you know, to, to, the, to the fact that for the first time anywhere in the world, we all were inside, right? So for the first time since I was last in India in the 70s, 1970s, you could see the Himalayas from New Delhi. You could see clear water in the Venice canals. You could see sunlight coming in in places there wasn't. Seven million people did not die in Europe alone just because of COVID-19, because they weren't breathing polluted air. So what COVID-19 has taught us is as a species, we can collectively do something big, which is what we'll have to do to face climate change, which is what we'll have to do to adapt uh, the whole work landscape to the age of intelligence. So, Brilliant. you know, COVID, is, COVID may have been a trigger, 
but it showed the un the, it showed me as an American that it's not about whether it's big or small government, but government is to be there when the people need it. And I don't and I think the examples pretty much around the world have been that the government wasn't ready to take care of the people. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we'll end up with new measures and a fairer society at the end of it. I think that's a good point to to leave it. David, listen, it's been fantastic and fascinating talking to you as always. I wish you the best of luck with your upcoming book. As soon as it's out, we'll put that 2020decade.com link up on our website and our podcast. And we will be talking again very, very soon. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. My pleasure listening to you guys talk. I hope you get a lot of listeners. Take care. Have a great day. Brendan, so we're... We're going to wrap up. It's been another interesting month. I hope to get to talk to you again next month. We're going to have a podcast next month again sometime in the middle of June. I'm sure we'll be speaking before then, won't we? Well, I think we I think we may be allowed out this week in uh, groups of four as long as we meet outside. So you never know. We might we might meet up towards the end of the week. I'll have to, check, I'll have to, I'll have to check to see if that's okay. very good listen thank you everybody thank you for listening and thanks again to David Hull fascinating conversation and look forward to talking to you in the future thank you